North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, all of you out there across the world. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Low Radio, where you hear the very best in natural medicine. You know me, I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, naturopathic doctor, a.k.a. Dr. Low, and thanks for joining me again tonight. You can also check me out, drlaurennoel.com. If you missed last week's show, I interviewed the Caltons, the authors of Naked Calories, as they shared their amazing story of traveling the world for six years, visiting over 100 countries, and the amazing health discoveries that they made. Check out the show, as well as any archive shows, at drlaurennoel.com. And of course, you can find me on iTunes on the podcast directory as well. I've been compiling a bunch of questions for tonight's show from Facebook and Twitter, but of course, if you'd like to submit more questions, I'll do my best to check those. Um, it's facebook.com slash Noel and twitter.com slash Noel. And of course, precedence is given to the callers. So if you call in and ask a question, 818-495-6919, we'll be sure to get your question on the show. So before I introduce our guest for tonight, just want to give you some announcements for the next up- upcoming shows in the next couple of weeks. So next week, I'm going to have Dr. Alex Vasquez back on the show. He's a naturopathic doctor, chiropractor, and osteopathic doctor, so he is crazy busy with his life, and he somehow writes like 10 books. So, um, But next week, we're going, to, we're going to be talking all about fibromyalgia. We haven't discussed this condition on the show yet, so really looking forward to highlight, highlighting this show and just what natural medicine can offer for this. It's really, really common. Um, so if you know of anybody with this condition, if you have it yourself, definitely listen to it and spread the word, and we will be giving you tons of great information on that show. So that's next week, um, same time at 6 p.m. Uh, next Tuesday. And then the following week, I'm going to interview Pam Colleen. She is the author of a Addiction, the Hidden Epidemic. We're going to be talking all about addictions, food addictions, drug addictions, and how we can really support it from a natural perspective to treat these conditions. So check that out. That's in two weeks, and we have all kinds of great shows lined up for you in the next couple months here. Tonight, I'm really excited to have this guest on the show. I've actually wanted to have him on for a while, and um, saw him at the uh, Low Carb Cruise, and it reminded me I really want to get him on the show. I haven't done a show specifically on cholesterol, and I didn't want anyone else on the show but him, so I'm super excited. We have Chris Masterjohn. He is the creator and maintainer of cholesterol-and-health.com. It's a website dedicated solely to the virtues of cholesterol and cholesterol-rich foods. He has a blog, The Daily Lipid. Um, he has another blog, Mother Nature Obeyed, which is hosted by the Weston A. Price Foundation. He's a speaker. He's a writer. He's been in. Um, he's authored five publications, published in peer-reviewed uh, journals, and he's also going to be speaking at the Ancestral Health Symposium in August at Harvard, um, entitled "The Food Matters: Free to Heal, Free to Nourish." And I will be there, so I'm really excited to see that in person. Um, Chris holds a bachelor's degree in history, and he's currently um, a doctoral candidate in nutritional sciences at the University of Connecticut. And he's very smart, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Doctor. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. How are you doing after your cruise? Did you um, heal okay? <laughs> did you? I don't know if you partied much, but did you have a good time? <laughs> yeah, the cruise was a great time. Um, I, uh, I I had a little recovering to do just to get back into the schedule of m- my work life, but yeah, I, I think I've I've managed to do that. So I did spend about 12 hours in the lab yesterday. So I think I've gotten myself back on the grind. Wow. <laughs> Twelve hours in the lab? Yeah. Well, you know, not every day, but that was yesterday. <laughs> trying to graduate. So what's your what's your routine like? Are you just like just crazy busy studying, taking tests and I mean, what's your typical week look like right now? Uh well, no, I mean I don't have I haven't had any classes for a couple of years and I'm on the verge mm-hmm. of graduating. So right now I'm just uh, with school and you know, my time is divided between writing my dissertation and just finishing up the last of my mm-hmm. lab work. and uh, But, you know, I have other things like that I, you know, other work responsibilities, writing and things like that. So. Cool. 
So I'm going to have a lot of patients probably tune into this, and they're probably not familiar with I feel like a lot of us know each other in this kind of, you know, realm of nutrition and, um, you know, radio and stuff. So, But for some of them who, who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about your story, how you got interested in cholesterol, you know, specifically. Tell us about you. Sure. Uh, so I had always been interested in health, you know, from my teenage years. Uh, I became a vegetarian in my late teenage years and had some pretty bad experiences with that, uh, tooth decay, anxiety disorders, digestive problems, and other things. I discovered the work of Weston Price uh, when I was in my early 20s. Um, discovering Weston Price was sort of a revolution for me, uh, a revelation and a revolution. Uh, <laughs> it was just briefly, Price said uh, he was... A dental researcher, and he was trying to discover the causes of tooth decay. And he was living at a time in America where uh, the nutritional health of the nation was probably at its bottom. Uh, the de- Great Depression was set in, so people were uh, very poor, or at least large segments of the population were very poor and couldn't afford high quality food. On top of this, uh, they had started refining. Uh, the flour, but they hadn't started adding any vitamins back to it yet, so people were uh, often living off of mostly white flour and white sugar and sweetened coffee, uh, you know, in certain segments of the population. And so he couldn't find anyone who didn't have tooth decay in America, so he went across the world looking for people who didn't have tooth decay, and what he found was that uh, there were many uh, non-modernized populations that had not encountered the industrial, modernized, refined foods. And these populations uh, were free not only of tooth decay, but of physical degeneration and what what we see as the common degenerative diseases uh, in our society. And he was able to study them on the cusp of the transition into uh, to modernized foods. And he was able to make uh, comparisons between the same groups in you know, many different uh, parts of the world who uh, were either on their modern, on their traditional diets or who had transitioned to these modern diets, rich in refined foods, and he documented the uh, consistent effects of this transition uh, resulting in physical degeneration everywhere he found, uh, everywhere he found this transition. But what really struck me about Price's work was that all of the successful groups who thrived with vibrant health on their traditional diets uh, valued certain nutrient-dense animal foods, especially organ meats, eggs, shellfish, and things like this, you know, different different foods depending on the group, but they all put a special emphasis on uh, nutrient-dense animal foods. And these were, of course, the foods that I was, uh, you know, specifically avoiding because I thought it would be good for me, and I thought it would be good for the animals and good for the environment. Uh, So when I started changing my diet in accordance with the principles that I had learned from Weston Price's work, uh, it really produced a revolution in my health, and that's how I got interested in uh, in really delving much deeper into the field of nutrition and making it a central focus of my life and work. Uh, So soon after that, I graduated with a history degree, And then I was initially intending on going into medical school, but I decided to ultimately go into research. And uh, while I was doing that, I got involved with the Western A. Price Foundation and started doing a lot of writing. And um, and that's basically how I got where I am today. Wow. So it really became your passion because you saw how, you know, how much, did it it really have a, a large effect on your health too when you started to implement this into your life? Uh, yeah, dramatically. I mean, I, you know, I had gotten to the point where I had, I really don't remember how many cavities, but it was a, a dozen or more, and I needed two root canals, and uh, that process of decay basically stopped uh, mm-hmm. at that point when I changed my diet. But the, what really struck me was uh, that it really uh, created a revolution in my mental health which was Mm -hmm. completely surprising to me because I hadn't really thought about that aspect of nutrition at all. Uh, But, you know, I I had a lot of, like, OCD-type symptoms, just things where, you know, I was working in the dining hall and uh, 
you know, I would take re- a really long time to pick out a glass if I wanted something to drink, or I would just have these weird habits, like if I wanted to take a plate, I would, t- you know, I'd lift up the stack of plates and take one from the middle instead of the top, just really weird things. And a few months, a few months after I started making changes to my diet, I saw someone doing the same thing while I was working in the dining hall, and I thought to myself, wow, that person's a weirdo. And then... <laughs> Right at that moment, I I sort of it just dawned on me that a few months ago I was doing the same thing, and uh, I no longer was, and I didn't even notice it, you know, to the point where I I thought that behavior was weird when I saw it in someone else, uh, and it was at that point that I realized that anxiety disorders that I had going back to my mid teenage years that had really got really aggravated while I was a vegetarian had just sort of disappeared without uh, me even noticing it or trying trying to fix them. Uh, so I would say it made some pretty dramatic changes to my health. Was that other weirdo a vegetarian? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's let's just kind of and, dive and of into some that, of this. Sh- oh, of course, I shouldn't have on. judged that person as a weirdo, but that, necess- that is necess- uh, nevertheless part of the story. So. Well, you had healed, you know, you, 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 you became <laughs> what the veil was lifted, right? So you're able to see things totally different. Yeah. And that's what it's, that's what it is too. It's like, you start to learn things. You're like, oh my God, the way that I've been raised, the things that I've learned, it's so different. And then you start to see everything differently, you know, it's a trip, yeah. but it's interesting you say that too. Cause I'm remembering when I was a kid, I had tons of cavities. I, I remember like pretty much every tooth I had had a cavity. And finally, when I lost all my teeth, I was like, yeah, I get to start all over again, you know, but then I ended up getting more cavities. So, and it, and actually once I became um, more paleo with my diet, I haven't had a cavity in years and, and I don't even use fluoride toothpaste anymore. I use all, you know, everything all natural. And it's just, it's a lot more than just, you know, more than the fluoride. And it's, it's really from the inside out with, with the health, you know? So anyway, another conversation. <laughs> So, all right, so let's let's dive into it. I just want to f- first start off by saying that I'm in love with cholesterol, and I really hope that we can get across how amazing cholesterol is in the body, and I know that you're a genius with this stuff. So first off, let's just kind of dive into what what role does cholesterol play in the body because it's such a villain now. Tell us about the health benefits of it. Sure. Well, cholesterol does lots of things, uh, and if you really want to get a good perception of how uh, important cholesterol is, uh, we can just take a look at the symptoms of cholesterol deficiency. And the best way to look at that is to look at Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome, which is a genetic disorder uh, that basically causes a deficiency of cholesterol. Because we make cholesterol, our, you know, we obtain cholesterol from the diet, but we also make it ourselves, our own bodies, our own cells make cholesterol. But uh, people who have Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome have a genetic defect that prevents them from making sufficient cholesterol. And this is a recessive disorder, meaning that you need to have two copies of the defective gene, one from your mother and one from your father, in order to have the syndrome. Uh, But it's incredibly rare. I think in our population, if I remember right off the top of my head, it's something like one in 60,000 births. Uh, But now you would think that uh, the number of carriers, people who just carry one copy of the defective gene, would have to be very uncommon in order for the actual disorder to be that uncommon. But in fact, the uh, carriers for this defective gene range from between 1% and 3%, depending on which population you look at. Uh, so there's a dramatic difference between the number of people who have the disorder and the number of people we would expect to have the disorder based on the number of people who carry the defective gene. And what that shows us is that most uh, most of the time when, uh, when a human being is conceived with two copies of the gene, that human being never makes it very far over the course of that pregnancy. So we see right away that cholesterol is essential to life itself. Uh, cholesterol is necessary for a healthy pregnancy and it's necessary simply to produce a living human being. Uh, But beyond that, in the rare cases where someone is actually born with Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome or SLOS to make it easier to say, uh, these poor children suffer from all kinds of physical and mental and behavioral defects. 
They often have uh, facial deformities. They often have uh, deformities in their fingers and toes, uh, deformities of their internal organs. They have very poor digestion, very bad vision. They uh, exhibit failure to thrive, difficulty growing, um, autistic-type symptoms, mental retardation, all kinds of things, and even self-injurious and aggressive behavior, greatly mm -hmm. increased uh, risk of infections. Uh, so we see here that cholesterol is necessary for mental health, it's necessary for digestion, it's necessary uh, for the proper development, uh, it's necessary for proper growth, necessary for immunity to infectious diseases, all of these different uh, roles that it plays in the body. And, you know, it's the, what we really don't know is just what happens to people who carry the gene for it, people who don't actually have the syndrome and just carry the gene for it, because these people, remember, are 1% to 3% of the population. Uh, and, you know, maybe they're, they're not making enough cholesterol, we don't really know, uh, but they're there is a very small number of studies done on the health of people who carry the gene, uh, and they do seem to have an increased risk of violent suicide, which mm -hmm. is an interesting parallel with the aggressive and self-injurious behavior uh, exhibited by children with SLOS. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, in any case, we can get a sense then that cholesterol is very important to the brain, and we can get that sense if we look just at the fact that uh, the brain is only 2% of the body's weight but has 25% of its cholesterol. Uh, that also indicates that something is really uh, special about cholesterol's role in the brain. And in fact, more mechanistically, we've discovered in the past decade or so that cholesterol is the limiting factor for synapse formation, the connection between brain cells. Uh, connections that are vital for learning and memory and things like that. And also that, uh, at least from animal experiments, it appears that uh, when we uh, animals, including us probably, go to sleep, uh, our brain makes more cholesterol. So probably one of the reasons that we feel better and we remember things better and we learn better when we're getting enough sleep it's because the sleep allows our brains to make more cholesterol. Now, it's interesting because, again, just to emphasize the role that cholesterol plays in digestion, uh, the typical treatment for smith only oppitz syndrome children had usually been to provide them with a diet very rich in cholesterol, like egg yolks and cream. Uh, but because they had so much trouble absorbing the cholesterol, uh, the FDA actually approved a pharmaceutical-grade cholesterol supplement uh, to, mm. to treat this. And the reason that they have such poor digestion and such poor absorption of the cholesterol from the egg yolks and cream is because cholesterol is necessary to make bile acids, which, are, uh, which in turn are necessary to help us absorb fat and cholesterol and fat-soluble vitamins from our foods. Uh, cholesterol also seems to play an important role in uh, the immune system. There are a lot of studies uh, suggesting that even just having cholesterol in our blood helps protect against pathogens. Uh, but we also know that cholesterol is vital to uh, give cell membranes their proper fluidity and is necessary to coordinate communication between cells. Proteins that are involved in communicating will often uh, are often docked at sort of what they call them rafts, lipid rafts in the cell membrane that are rich in cholesterol and, and various other important fatty acids and so on. Uh, and cholesterol, of course, is the mother of all our steroid hormones. You can see the resemblance in the word cholesterol, uh, steroid. Uh, the, the resemblance in the word indicates the chemical resemblance. And in fact, all of our uh, steroid hormones, whether they're sex steroids or uh, hormones that regulate uh, blood pressure and mineral balance, blood sugar, and so on, are made from cholesterol. So cholesterol plays many, many, many important roles in the body. Awesome. And I know, of course, people are listening going, okay, well, that's the good cholesterol, Chris, right? What about the bad cholesterol? Does that have any importance in the body? 
Uh, well, you know, the, the terms good cholesterol and bad cholesterol are sort of, uh, it would be better to just call both of them the bad terminology because they don't really make any sense. Um, there is only one type of cholesterol. Cholesterol is the same molecule, and it doesn't matter where in the animal kingdom it comes from. It doesn't matter whether it's coming from your eggs or you're eating it in fish or you're making it yourself. There is just one molecule called cholesterol. Uh, there are uh, different types of transporters for cholesterol. And when people talk about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, usually they mean that HDL cholesterol is the good cholesterol and LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol. Uh, but these aren't two different types of cholesterol. They're HDL and LDL. That stands for high-density lipoprotein and low-density lipoprotein. Lo lipoproteins are transporters for the cholesterol. And they may play some, you know, there's some indication that the lipoproteins uh, play an important role in immune defense uh, in the blood, but primarily they're there to transport cholesterol, fats, and other fat-soluble vitamins uh, through the body. Now, the idea that LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol and HDL cholesterol is the good cholesterol uh, comes from two things. One is a theory called reverse cholesterol transport theory, and this is basically a hypothesis that LDL cholesterol, or LDL rather, transports cholesterol uh, away from the liver and HDL transports cholesterol to the liver. And so the logic behind LDL being bad and HDL being good uh, in, within this hypothesis is that uh, LDL will carry cholesterol into atherosclerotic plaque and HDL will carry cholesterol to the liver to get rid of it. Now, there are two major problems with this theory. One is that experimental evidence shows that that the way that the root, when cholesterol gets carried back to the liver from HDL, it passes on to LDL first. So HDL takes the cholesterol, gives it to LDL, and then the liver takes up the LDL. So th there's substantial indication that this whole idea is just wrong to begin with. The second uh, major problem with it is that the only time it's ever been tested is when they uh, had the drug torcetrapib, which um, inhibits an enzyme that transfers cholesterol from LDL to HDL. Uh, and so, uh, so by inhibiting the, excuse me, that transfers uh, cholesterol from HDL to LDL. So by inhibiting this enzyme, they were able to raise the good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and lower the bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, uh, but the problem was they had to stop the trial because people who were getting the drug were dying left and right. Uh, so the only time they've ever actually tested this theory that LDL is bad and HDL is good, uh, the test was a miserable failure. And now they're, you know, they're trying to recover the hypothesis by saying, well, this drug had, uh, you know, some problem with it that was unrelated to its mechanism of action. So they're coming out with different drugs that are like it that do the same thing and we don't have those results in yet. Um, you know, I can only hope to God that they're that they're right. Uh, because, but, but the, the you know, I'm certainly worried that they're wrong. Uh, because if this drug turns out to be just like the last one, it might also wind up killing people left and right. Um, so the whole idea that LDL is bad and HDL is good, I personally don't think uh, has any merit. But there, uh, but there. There is, it is a fact that the, um, there is a correlation uh, between uh, the total to HDL cholesterol ratio, uh, meaning the higher your total cholesterol is or LDL cholesterol relative to your HDL cholesterol is a predictor of heart disease risk. There's a correlation, uh, but you know, correlation does not mean causation. There's no evidence that... Um, that it's a causal relationship and that LDL cholesterol is actually killing you and that HDL cholesterol is actually saving you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so you're saying that even LDL, which people tend to think is bad cholesterol, can still have beneficial um, effects in the body, right? Yeah. Well, you know, LDL cholesterol is meant to transport cholesterol to where it needs to go. Um, right. So, you know, you have to 
you have we have to move beyond thinking that there are good molecules and bad molecules and good particles mm-hmm. and bad particles. LDL is good when it's doing what it's supposed to. Uh, mm-hmm. What LDL is supposed to do is transport cholesterol, fats, and fat-soluble vitamins through the body to transport them efficiently and to ultimately allow them to be utilized. Fat-soluble vitamins for various purposes, cholesterol for conversion to bile acids, for conversion to sex hormones, and for uh, building up cell membranes and all of the things that it's supposed to do. Now, if LDL cholesterol is not doing that, if the LDL is sitting in the blood and not going to where it's supposed to go, then you have a big problem uh, on your hands. One, because you're not going to get those sex hormones. You're not going to get those fat-soluble vitamins delivered to where they need to be. You're not going to get the cholesterol turned into bile acids. It's going to sit in the blood and waste away. Um, And then on top of that, uh, whenever you have something sitting in the blood, especially something that has components that are vulnerable to oxidative degeneration, then over time it interacts with oxidants uh, and oxidative damage ensues, and Mm -hmm. this is very dangerous to the blood vessels. The immune system will come and sort of clean it up as an atherosclerotic plaque. You can see that process in many other things, not, you know, sort of uh, if we move away from biology to to think about some things that are easier for us to comprehend, uh, Mm -hmm. if you just have some food and you leave it sitting out on the counter for weeks, <laughs> ultimately it's going to start smelling bad and it's going to start rotting. You know, when yeah. things are not used, they go bad. And that's the mm-hmm. problem. That's the problem with LDL cholesterol. LDL is not uh, bad for us. What is bad for us is when we don't utilize it properly because then uh, when things hang around, they go bad. Okay, so how do we get it to go where it needs to go rather than become funky in our blood? Sure. Well, what we what we need to have is robust LDL receptor activity. LDL receptor is the receptor that takes LDL from our blood into our cells, uh, and there appears to be uh, two main things that govern LDL receptor activity. One is the amount of cholesterol in the cell. So uh, when when the cell is starving for cholesterol, it will increase its expression of the LDL receptor. And that's sort of the um, that's sort of the cell's way of uh, regulating the LDL receptor for itself. Uh, but then on top of this, there's another layer of regulation that is meant for the body as a whole, and that regulation uh, is governed by thyroid hormone. So regardless of whether the cell needs more cholesterol or not, the more thyroid hormone we have, uh, the thyroid hormone tells the cell that the body is in a state of abundance and it's time to uh, take up more cholesterol and make more sex hormones and make more bile acids uh, to uh, produce healthy digestion, to produce um, healthy fertility, and so on and so forth. Uh, so what we want to have is very good communication of that thyroid signal and, of course, thyroid interacts with a lot of other hormones. Uh, leptin is uh, an important hormone in governing thyroid hormone. Insulin is also important and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's really uh, – there. so despite the fact that there is a very sort of uh, complex regulation of thyroid hormone, thyroid hormone is the, the proximate actor, meaning it's thyroid hormone uh, that really directly governs the LDL receptor. Hmm. Really interesting. So a person can have low thyroid function, and that's the connection where they can get high cholesterol from that, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it's important to uh, – low thyroid function is a really good term. Uh, you know, a lot of times people get caught up in the term hypothyroidism, and then they argue about whether uh, – you know, they argue about the definition of hypothyroidism because – you know, mm-hmm. the medical establishment will say true hypothyroidism only occurs when you have elevated TSH. Well, you know, in, when we're talking about high cholesterol, most likely uh, the vast majority of people who have low thyroid uh, function do not have that specific type of hypothyroidism. 
You know, mm-hmm. one of, probably one of the very common causes, I think, is probably insulin resistance, which is well recognized to be afflicting our population at very uh, high high rates. And what happens when you have insulin resistance is um, if insulin is not able to uh, properly communicate to the cell, then you a number of that can affect thyroid hormone in a number of ways. But one of them is to um, is that the conversion of T4, the thyroid hormone precursor, to the active T3 uh, will fail to happen, or will fail to happen mm-hmm. in in uh, sufficient amounts, um, and that doesn't show up as you know, quote-unquote, hypothyroidism. It doesn't elevate TSH. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is uh, when people are insulin-resistant, they often have trouble storing fat in their fat tissue, which is ironic because of, oftentimes uh, people who are insulin-resistant insulin are actually obese. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's also part of the same process. Once your adipose tissue uh, gets stored up with, uh, you know, a certain level of fat, uh, it becomes harder and harder to store that uh, fat in the fat tissue. So what you get is an elevation of free fatty acids in the blood. And if the elevation of free fatty acids uh, reaches a certain threshold within the cell, then it can actually stop thyroid hormone from binding to its receptor. And that doesn't really mm-hmm. show up on any blood test. Uh, so these are all different aspects of thyroid function that often uh, are sort of very elusive when we're trying to look for where the problem is, especially with the conventional blood tests. Mm-hmm. I love that. It just—it's so confirming for me because it's—that's exactly my approach I take with patients. Is right off the bat, we look at blood sugar, you know, regulation. We look at thyroid hormone testing, just the full panel. I'm not talking just TSH and, you know, and 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 also different. So that's actually a good segue to get into, I guess, testing for cholesterol. So. What's your take on the the proper way to assess for a person's cholesterol health? All the different markers that you would recommend. Yeah, well, I think you know, I think the conventional uh, the conventional testing is a testing that we have the most research on that we're best able to interpret, um, and I think it actually is quite useful. Uh, just looking at total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and HDL cholesterol, for example, can be very useful. Uh, first of all, because it's cheap and widely available, you know, everyone gets this tested. Uh, and it doesn't cost a lot of money for, um, you know, for a lot of other blood lipid tests that you would get that are more advanced. You know, you would wind up paying a lot, a lot more money for. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's a practical advantage. Uh, but also, I think that. Um, it, you know, it's it's very important not to get caught up in in this sort of cause and effect theory where we think, oh, high LDL cholesterol is the cause of heart disease. Therefore, if my LDL cholesterol is a little high, I panic. Uh, I don't think we should look at it like that at all. Uh, however, if we start to see these figures go out of the range or we start to see a dramatic shift, uh, you know, for a given person, say their blood cholesterol is always stable at 180 for most of their life, and then suddenly it goes up to 250 or something like that. Uh, these types of changes can often um, signify a, a problem starting to uh, starting to to develop. And uh, you know, I've seen cases where people have developed uh, thyroid issues, and by far and away the first sign was that their LDL cholesterol started drifting upward. And they ignored it because they said, oh, well, LDL cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease, so it doesn't matter. But then, you know, many other things started happening. Uh, One person I know started developing anemia and iron overload at the same time. And uh, after, you know, extensive looking uh, looking into the problem and going to many different people, uh, this person eventually found that their T3 was low. And so suddenly it... uh, suddenly it became clear that the LDL cholesterol had been going up, you know, months and months before that because the T3 was low. So my position is if you have, uh, you know, elevated total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol, you should start thinking about thyroid issues right away. Um, you know, this might not, this might be sort of a moot point for you if you're testing everyone's thyroid panel as soon as they come into the office. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. for the average person going to the average uh, 
doctor. That's not happening. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's why I think it's important to pay attention to blood lipids, to these conventional blood lipids, uh, for the average person. Um, mm-hmm. In any case, uh, when I think about how to judge whether cholesterol is high uh, or or low, because that can be a concern too, um, I I think it's it's worthwhile to look at some of the uh, cholesterol values that we see in populations that have been shown to be free of heart disease. Uh, so right now, they're uh, you know they'll put people on statins when their cholesterol goes above 200 milligrams per deciliter right now. Um, but mm-hmm. w- when we look at populations free of heart disease, in uh, especially in tropical islands where they eat a lot of coconut, uh, we see that uh, cholesterol can easily get up to uh, 180 to 200 or a little bit higher than that for men and can easily get up between 200 and 250 milligrams per deciliter for women. Uh, so especially for women, when you have you know a total cholesterol over 200, it's, I really don't think um, that that should necessarily be an issue. Uh, however, I think what, when you get total cholesterol um, in the 200 to 250 range, especially for men, uh, it's time to start looking at some uh, some other markers. Um, especially if this is accompanied by a very high uh, total HDL cholesterol ratio. So, for example, if you have a man who has a total cholesterol of 250 and his total to HDL cholesterol ratio is 7, instead of, you know, a healthier ratio would be around maybe 2 to 4, say, um, then that could very well indicate... uh, some kind of thyroid issue, and you can start to look at thyroid, you know, thyroid panel, and you can also look at symptoms. You can also look at sex hormones. Uh, so, for example, if someone has um, these types of blood lipids and they have really low testosterone, then that's a really, really, really uh, strong indication that that person has high total uh, cholesterol and a high total HDL cholesterol ratio, because uh, thyroid hormone is not doing its job, which is to take LDL cholesterol in from the blood into the cell and convert the cholesterol to testosterone. Uh, mm. So when you see these uh, these types of patterns, I think that's strongly indicative of um, some kind of some kind of metabolic issue that probably involves thyroid hormone. So I would say wow. that um, 200 to 250 for total cholesterol is not the panic area. But it's the let's start looking for more clues area, um, especially for men. Uh, women, I would I would give more leeway up to maybe up to 250, especially um, especially in the uh, uh, postmenopausal women. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, a, a, a total to HDL cholesterol ratio when it starts getting above uh, 3 or 3.5 and starts getting towards 4, that is definitely not the panic area, but um, again, when it's, you know, if it's substantially above that range and the total cholesterol ratio is high, I think that's concern, Um, you know, time to start looking at other factors. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when someone's triglycerides are, I would, I think the reference range is pretty decent. Uh, you know, when we look at populations free of heart disease, we usually see uh, blood triglycerides around 100, 120 milligrams per deciliter. The typical lab cutoff is 150, um, mm-hmm. so I don't think that's, you know, too far off. Uh, but if someone has triglycerides higher than that, especially a lot higher than that, they're probably insulin resistant. Uh, I mean, that's especially true if their triglycerides are... Um, sort of respond in a dramatic way to carbohydrate intake. So, you know, someone who's who has triglycerides of 500 on a uh, high carbohydrate diet, and then they go down to 50 when they're on a low carbohydrate diet. That's that's a very good indication of insulin resistance. I think. Hmm. Really interesting. Oh, what about uh, really low triglycerides, like super super low? What's your take on that? 
Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't looked into that too much there, but the, okay. uh, I've just seen it a bunch with there, patients. There, there you know, I see it like thirty, twenty, thirty. I just see it a lot with some of my female patients, like in their twenties, thirties, or forties. That that's their value of triglycerides, and I just was curious if, if you knew of anything with that. I've asked so many different people, and I haven't had. I haven't have come any, up with a whole. Do they lot. have any? Do they have any symptoms mm. along with that? Sure. I mean, thyroid, you know, possible autoimmune stuff, digestive. I mean, of course, they're, they're coming to see me because they don't feel well. <laughs> yeah, you well, know? it could be it could be a, a, a hypo-beta-lipoproteinemia. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are genetic disorders where someone uh, can't make the, uh, the protein that is used uh, to trans, you know, is used to, to compose the LDL or VLDL particle, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and these these genetic disorders. I'm not sure off the top of my head what their frequency is in the population, uh, but they are. I I would imagine that they're the most common reason for triglyceride levels that low, uh, mm-hmm. but that would usually be accompanied by low levels of uh, fat soluble vitamins. For example, if you measured serum retinol, uh, uh, that could also put potentially be low. Uh, I'm I'm not sure off the top of my head all of the okay. proper diagnostic criteria, but it, it might make sense <laughs> to get a genetic test because uh, what happens is um, what happens is if you can't make the lipoproteins properly, you get a severely disrupted transport not only of cholesterol but of all all of the fat soluble vitamins. So quite quite often. Uh, you get deficiency symptoms of uh, the fat soluble vitamins along with um, along with the low lipid levels. Uh, but I, 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 there might be other reasons for that that I that I don't know about as well. So. Okay. All right. Got to do some more digging. If uh, you guys just tuned in, we're talking to Chris Masterjohn all about cholesterol, the truth about cholesterol. If you'd like to call and ask a question, I'll open up the phone lines, 818-495-6919. If you guys are already in the switchboard, go and press 1, I believe. Maybe it's press 2. I can't remember. I should have prompted you and told you <laughs> what you can press, but press that and I'll get you on um, to ask a question. So, and I have a few Facebook questions. So I'm going to take it to the Facebook questions right now. So this is from Christian. He's a naturopathic doctor, a friend of mine. He's curious about your thoughts on APOE and genetic testing for it. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts on APOE and genetic testing for it. I mean, there are, there are some studies that correlate uh, certain APOE isoforms with uh, risk of Certain diseases, especially Alzheimer's disease, uh, but I don't, I don't have uh, very well developed thoughts on uh, exactly, I guess, <laughs> how to apply the uh, utility of those genetic tests to practical situations. Okay, um, this is from Evelyn. She wants to know your your thoughts on bacon. She says she eats it like candy, and she's wondering <laughs> what your thoughts are. <laughs> Uh, I think that bacon tastes good. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I don't eat a lot of bacon. I buy bacon once every couple of months, um, mostly just because I think it tastes good. And I mean, it's, you know, it's nutritious. It's a pretty decent source of choline. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that most, uh, most grain-fed pigs don't have a very, I ideal uh fat profile and that you know it's a processed meat and there's some uh, the science is a little iffy behind what how harmful the processing is but uh i you know i, I would err on the side of using uh fresh meats rather mm-hmm. than processed meat myself but i'm not anti-bacon so okay. I, I think it's something to use in moderation Okay. This question is from um, Steve and Terry Belinsky. They would love to have you address the VAP test, um, what labs do it, how to interpret it, et cetera. So what's your thoughts on the VAP? Uh, yeah. So uh, um, what was the second part of that question? The, the um, it said what labs do it and how to interpret it, et cetera. I think they just want your oh, your yeah. thoughts on VAP. I, yeah. uh, I, I, I don't really promote the um, the particle size testing. A lot of people get the VAP test because uh, it gives a more detailed 
lipid profile that includes particle LDL particle size testing and things like that. Uh, I I don't favor that at the moment because um, for basically two reasons. One is that uh, there's there's no standardized methodology for determining particle size and determining whether someone has good particle size or bad particle size. Uh, if you take the same person and you uh, send, you know, the same blood sample, you divide it up and you send it to get the VAP test, to get particle size tested by NMR, to get tube gel electrophoresis, and et cetera, et cetera. All these different methods uh, will disagree on how to classify that person's particle size. And there's, there's no uh, strong evidence saying which one we should use. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, the the idea that particle size is, is especially useful comes from uh, some correlations between smaller alveolar particle size and heart disease risk. Uh, but in virtually all of the prospective studies they've done, uh, prospective studies are where you you would first test the person's particle size and then follow the group for a certain length of time and uh and and see you know whether people with one or another particle size have a different rate of developing heart disease over the course of time uh so whenever they've done these studies they've always verified that indeed people with smaller particle LDL particle size have a higher risk of heart disease but when they statistically adjust uh particle size for the conventional risk factors such as the total HDL cholesterol ratio, uh, the association generally disappears. So what that indicates to me is that they're basically providing uh, redundant information about the risk of heart disease. Um, so I so at this point I just I don't really uh, see the point in spending the extra money on more complicated tests when we're not really at the point where we can say for sure how useful they are. Um, hmm. So I'm not really, so I mean, if someone wants to test them just to get a, a, a bigger picture and they and they want to spend the resources on that, that's, that's fine. Um, you know, I wouldn't tell someone not to get a test, but at the same time, um, I, I just, I won't advocate actually getting the tests myself mm-hmm. uh, just because it seems... Uh, it just seems redundant and mm-hmm. a, a waste of money to me right now. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I only order tests if I know that it's, number one, reliable, or number two, it's going to change the course of treatment. And if either one of those are the case, then it's not really worth it to me. So but that's interesting to know that it, it might not be very consistent with the results. Huh. Okay. And, and similar with oxidized cholesterol, right? I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing. Uh, well, uh, to my knowledge, uh, people... Uh, I, I don't think uh, oxidized cholesterol has been commercially available until uh, the last month or two. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you had an oxidized cholesterol test? No, I, I just heard that there's there's a particular lab on the East Coast that's you know starting to do it. But I'm, again, I don't want to run oh, it until right, I know right, that it's right. reliable. Right. Yeah. Well, you know they have. Um, I yeah. I don't remember the name of the company, but there's a company that just came out with a test, and they had some preliminary data that made it look pretty uh pretty useful in terms of mm. uh they they sh- I think they showed the oxidized cholesterol was much higher in uh people who had heart disease versus didn't or something like that. They had, they had pretty impressive data but um you know the but the thing is um you know can you can you the thing becomes the question becomes uh how how good is it at predicting someone's future risk for heart disease and uh but more importantly um how useful is it in helping us identify what this particular person's problem is and how to treat it or how to overcome it um mm-hmm. so i think I think it'll probably take us some time you know whenever a new brand new test comes out, I think it'll take us some time. Uh, and probably there will be a lot of disagreement for a while uh, about, you know, whether the test is useful in identifying 
the causes of problems and how best to treat them, which is what mm-hmm. these tests should be for. Absolutely. All right, let me see. Look at the phone lines here. We got some brave people on the switchboard, but they can't. <laughs> they don't want to ask questions. They're just listening. Um, all right, so let's let's get into the question. I know a lot of my patients they continually ask me all the time, and I'm sure you've answered it a million times. But it's still, we have to continually address this. Does high cholesterol cause heart disease? Uh, yeah. So no, I don't think that high cholesterol causes heart disease. Uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, people tend to to sort of. Uh, d- divide into two factions over this issue. Um, you know, for example, you have uh, scientists who call themselves cholesterol warriors who say that they're making a war on cholesterol, and you have the cholesterol skeptics who generally maintain that cholesterol doesn't have anything to do with heart disease. And I have generally been promoting the stance that is sort of in between these uh, these two more radical stances because... I do think that a lot of the research that has been used to claim that cholesterol causes heart disease is actually very useful, uh, but I think we need to move on, uh, sort of transcend this idea that there are bad molecules. And in fact, I think at some point we need to have a movement for molecular equality. And I look forward (laughs) uh, to the day when we can call uh, people who... Um, speak so abusively of molecules as molecularists with all of the uh, <laughs> connotations that that racists would have now, for example. Um, so I think you know we need to we need to move beyond blaming molecules for our problems, and we need to look at the processes that are going on in biology. Uh, and in the case of cholesterol. Uh, what we need to realize is that it's not, um, you know, as I said before, it's not the pr- it's not the presence of cholesterol in the blood. It's not the presence of the LDL particle in the blood. It's what is the process? How is it being used? Is it doing what it's supposed to do, or is something going wrong? And is it doing things that it's not supposed to do, or is it not doing what it is supposed mm-hmm. to do? And when we look at cholesterol, uh, you know the the foundational evidence for the uh, the theory that cholesterol causes heart disease is the cholesterol fed rabbit model back in 1913, uh, and they showed in the cholesterol fed rabbit model that if you uh, fed the rabbit cholesterol and it caused its blood cholesterol to go up dramatically, the rabbit would develop atherosclerosis. And they showed over time that you could actually generalize this phenomenon to many other species. And, um, in fact, if you consider the phenomenon as hypercholesterolemia, the increase in blood cholesterol, you can generalize it to pretty much any species. Uh, But there are some species like rats and dogs where um, if you fed them cholesterol, they wouldn't develop high cholesterol and they wouldn't develop heart disease. So this seemed to make a good case that the high cholesterol is what's causing um, the heart disease but there was a huge problem with this, even back in the early days of the cholesterol-fed rabbit, and that was that if you inject the cholesterol into the blood of the rabbit, the rabbit does not get atherosclerosis. If you feed the rabbit cholesterol, it would get atherosclerosis. And if you fed the rabbit cholesterol and then isolated the lipoproteins in the rabbit's blood that was carrying the cholesterol and injected those into a rabbit, that rabbit would get cholesterol. So what we see is two things going on here. One, when the rabbit eats the cholesterol, it gets packaged into lipoproteins, and those lipoproteins, when they are in the blood at a very high level, contribute to atherosclerosis, whether it's because the rabbit ate the cholesterol or because those lipoproteins were isolated and injected into the rabbit. However, if you just inject the rabbit with cholesterol that has not been packaged into lipoproteins, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't cause any atherosclerosis. So right away we see that there's a huge problem with the idea that cholesterol causes atherosclerosis. It can't be cholesterol. If it was, then injecting rabbits with cholesterol would give them heart disease, and it doesn't. Um, so mm-hmm. it's uh, so we need to, first of all, to get away from cholesterol and to think about lipoproteins because the rabbit only gets atherosclerosis when the lipoproteins are elevated in the blood. And we can say this about basically any other any other species you look at. 
but what research has revealed over time is that it's not the presence of high concentrations of lipoprotein in the blood. It is the oxidative degeneration of the lipoproteins. And that oxidative degeneration actually starts with polyunsaturated fatty acids in the LDL particles membrane. Uh, so it isn't cholesterol at all. Even in the lipoprotein, it's not the cholesterol that's the problem. It's the oxidation of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. But again, uh, moving beyond this sort of myopic moleculism, it is not the polyunsaturated fatty acids that are to blame, uh, although consuming uh, too many of them by consuming modern vegetable oils can be an issue. Uh, but it is not the mere presence of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the blood that is to blame. In fact, the mere presence of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the blood as part of these lipoproteins is completely unavoidable. It is the process of oxidative degeneration. And uh, so in order to prevent that, we could take a multi-faceted uh, approach. Uh, one important part is uh, maintaining good thyroid status, and proper clearance and utilization uh, of the lipoproteins like we were talking about earlier. And the other is uh, preventing the excessive production of oxidants. And this could come down to a few different things. One, uh, avoiding uh, chronic inflammation. Uh, two, avoiding exposure to environmental toxins. And three, maintaining the metabolism in a good, uh, robust state which is also in part depending on thyroid hormone, but has some other aspects to it. And then the third is to get, uh, is to sufficiently nourish the antioxidant defense system. And I would prefer to say that than to eat lots of antioxidants because uh, the antioxidant defense system is very misunderstood. Often people reduce it to, you know, consuming the antioxidants in fruits and vegetables, but it's much more uh much more complicated than that. Um, we should take a much more holistic view towards nourishing the antioxidant defense system. And that means getting sufficient protein in the diet. It means getting sufficient B vitamins. It means getting uh, sufficient selenium. It means getting sufficient iron, copper, zinc, manganese. Uh, it means getting, it basically means eating a nutrient dense diet that includes lots of fresh. Uh, whole foods, both of plant and animal origin. You know, if you have heart in your diet, you know, like beef heart or buffalo heart, uh, that has a lot of coenzyme Q10, which is important for the antioxidant defense system, for example. Liver in the diet provides B vitamins and lipoic acid and lots of other things that are important to the antioxidant defense system. So uh, I think taking these three approaches, maintaining robust metabolism, uh, avoiding the production of oxidants uh, by avoiding inflammation and toxins and ha getting a very uh, wholesome, nutrient-dense diet from a wide spectrum of food sources in order to properly nourish the defense systems of the body. Uh, these, I think, are, are where we should look to for our protection and immunity uh, to heart disease, uh, protection from an immunity to heart disease, uh, rather than thinking about the amount of cholesterol in the blood. So that's my general perspective. Amen. Treat the root cause. I love it. I'm all about Absolutely. that, Chris. <laughs> I'm going to open up to the phone lines. Um, caller from the 303, you're on Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Good evening. It's Stephen. I have a uh, quick question for you. My uh, cholesterol is, is good. I've worked uh, hard to, to get it where it is uh, in the 150 range. I'm 61 years old. Um, but my iron level is very low, so consequently I need to eat, uh, uh, you know, more iron-rich foods. And and uh, been told, uh, you know, to eat uh, red meat a couple of days a week and that kind of thing. And I'm just kind of worried about the balance then of uh, my cholesterol going back up. So where's the happy medium here? What, what should I be doing? Uh, what did you say your cholesterol level was? Uh, about 150. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, 150 is is pretty low. So I don't. If your cholesterol goes up a little bit, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Okay. Uh, but if you're trying to look for a 
a uh, source of iron in your diet, uh, clams are really are, clams are much richer in iron than red meat is. Uh, so if, okay. Yeah. So if you if you <laughs> I mean if that if that if that's your main concern is getting a lot of uh, highly bioavailable iron. Um, without eating a lot of animal foods, if that's what you want to do, then I would highly recommend the clams. Because uh, okay. clams are very rich in heme iron, which is, you know, the highly bioavailable form. And uh, on on top of that, uh, they're way higher in it than, than beef is. But there's a lot of plant foods that have iron in them, too. Um, and the iron in plant foods is much more available if you eat them with sources of vitamin C. Uh, so, you know, green vegetables and legumes and things like that also provide iron. But, uh, you know, but I, but I, but again, I, I just, I wouldn't worry about your cholesterol at this point. 150 is pretty low and I, you know, if it goes up to 160 or 170 or 180, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I don't mind eating the steak a couple nights a week. And it's kind of nice, <laughs> but uh, I also don't want it to, to go uh, drastically the other way either. So, okay, well, cool. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you yeah, for your question. Thanks. All right. All right. Let's see here. I have like... 20 questions I wanted to ask you, but I don't think we have time for them tonight. So, um, Chris, is there anything else that you think would be important for us to cover about cholesterol? Because I have, like, so many I could ask, but... <laughs> uh, I Well, I mean, I think we covered the uh, the, the basics. Um, so yeah. I'd, be, I'd be happy to answer any other questions. But, you know, on, the, on cholesterol, the basic shtick is cholesterol is really good for you. Um, you know, a lot of foods that are, well, I guess another point that I could add is that a lot of cholesterol-rich foods that have been demonized because of this idea that cholesterol causes heart disease are very nutritious. And so, yeah. you know, some of these foods like cholesterol, uh, excuse me, egg yolks and liver, for example, are really high in cholesterol. And those are on the American Heart Association's no-no list for people at risk for heart disease. But I think it's important not to demonize these foods because, uh, again, moving beyond this focus on one bad molecule, uh, these foods are very uh, nutritious, and liver and egg yolks, for example, are excellent sources of choline, which is important for the nervous system and for liver health and so on. And uh, there's, we're increasingly recognizing that people may need to consume more choline than they are. In fact, it's quite common not even to meet the RDA for choline, but there are researchers who want to increase the RDA for choline. Uh, mm. And there was, um, I wasn't actually able to hear this myself, uh, but for, uh, I, I did talk to someone who, who had listened in on uh, one of the, I think it was, I think it was the USDA, one of the government uh, food panel uh, discussions where they called this the choline problem, uh, this this problem hmm. that people need to eat more choline, but we can't tell them to eat more choline because choline is found in all of the foods that are high in cholesterol. Uh, wow. So this is the choline problem. So I think that's the one. I think that's the one a- aspect to add to the to the shtick here is that um, in addition to you know not fearing uh, cholesterol as the cause of heart disease, in addition to uh, realizing that cholesterol plays important roles in the body, and in addition to uh, taking a more nuanced view of blood lipids so that we can move away from seeing them as the root cause of disease, but at the same time take advantage of them as metabolic clues, on top mm-hmm. of all that, uh, we really need to get the point across that uh, a lot of the foods that have been demonized uh, for their cholesterol content are rich in other nutrients, that are important mm-hmm. to our health. So we can't Absolutely. just look at an egg yolk and see cholesterol. We have to look at the egg yolk and see the wide array of nutrients that are within it, uh, some of which mm-hmm. are very important to our health. Yeah, our bodies are starving for those foods, so eat them and, and really address the underlying inflammation as the biggest culprit in these you know, top causes of death in our country. It is not about the cholesterol. So I hope that my listeners really get that point across today. You really 
retrain that brain because it's it's uh we've been fed a lot of you know crazy information so thank you chris i really appreciate you yeah. coming on the show uh, where yeah, can our listeners learn more about you. you yeah thank you so much for having me on yeah for sure and what's your website again for the listeners uh, my website is cholesterolandhealth.com. That's with hyphens in between the words, cholesterol-and-health.com. You can just Google the Daily Lipid, the name of my blog, or my name, Chris Master John. You'll also find it. Um, so I have, if you go to my website, uh, there's, um, you know, you can click on a number of different tabs to get basic information on cholesterol. Uh, then you can also get to my special reports there. I sell some special reports on my website one on thyroid toxins and one on essential fatty acids, and you can also get to my blog from there. Uh, if you are familiar with my material and just want to keep up with the new stuff, my blog is the best way to do that. You can subscribe by email or RSS, uh, and I post you know everything new that I do, I post there on the Daily Lipid, and you can also follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Awesome, and I'm, I'm looking forward to you know actually talking, hanging with you in um, in Boston and. Um yeah, yeah that'll be awesome. Yeah, well, very good. Yeah. For sure. Well, best of luck with the rest of your program and getting your doctorate. I'm sure you're going to rock it. Oh, I just rhymed. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. All right, Chris. Well, Thanks. We'll luck. talk to you soon. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right, guys. That's the show. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, mark your calendars next week. We're going to be talking all about fibromyalgia with uh, Dr. Vasquez and then the next week with Pam Colleen. Uh, check me out, drlaurennoel.com and bloomnaturalhealth.com. And thanks again for all the callers, and, or for the callers, Stephen, and also all the Facebook questions, Christian and Evelyn and Steve. And really appreciate you guys tuning in. Check out Chris Masterjohn. He's amazing. Look at his website. And have a great week. Talk to you soon. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.